Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hi, you're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. This is the 133rd episode of our half an hour program. Comes to you live on various formats every week. Also as a podcast. Really happy to have you with us. As usual, bad news, bad, bad news from Israel and Palestine. Once again, the town of Jenin, the home of the Freedom Theater, once again, under terrible attack. Prashant, take us directly to the events taking place in Jenin, in Palestine. What happened over the past two the past in the past week in Jenin? You know, Israeli forces not just sending soldiers, which is what is pretty common uh, in, which has really become a common occurrence in many parts of the West Bank, but actually sending a full-fledged military force. You know, we saw helicopters, we saw drones, we saw armored vehicles of all kinds. So, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, a full-fledged invasion. Many people have compared it to the invasion that took place in 2002. Which in which about 52 people were killed, I believe. This time the death toll has been around 12, but it has also been marked by you know huge amount of injury and a massive demolition drive that has taken place uh, in Jenin, specifically targeting the refugee camp. You mentioned the Freedom Theater, you know, very iconic institution there, where, where whose people have actually uh, activists associated with that have written about the kind of damage that has taken place in Jenin, and it is really set back. Uh, you know, relief work, any kind of reconstruction work. And it, we need to remember that this is not an attack in isolation. Jenin has been continuously targeted by Israeli forces for many, many months now. So it's not like uh, this came out of nowhere. There's been a continuous pattern, not only of attacks on Jenin, but attacks across the West Bank and also in Gaza. And I think this year, last year was 2022, that way, was the most deadly uh, you know, I believe since the UN had started collecting data and this year it does definitely look like this year is going to beat that very horrible record. The number of Palestinians killed and injured is likely to be even more. So that's uh, pretty much what the situation is right now. So after two and a half days, they withdrew and Israel made it very clear that they're going to be back. So it is not that, you know, I think they, they wanted to make that a very clear point. Now, I think two or three things that we need to sort of uh, you know, remember or recollect in this context that Israel's stated aim is to sort of crush uh, the resistance that has been growing in Jenin. And uh, obviously, uh, that is definitely not going to work because uh, the resistance is a result, obviously, of Israel's own uh, oppressive policies as well as the desire for, uh, you know, the very uh, the powerful desire for freedom among Palestinians for, for self-determination among them. And the kind of resistance that we are seeing building up in Jenin is uh, in, is cross-factional cross in some senses that, you know, there are members of various groups who are coming together, who are increasingly working together. Their forms of resistance have taken on more sophisticated forms. They're able to target uh, some of the Israeli uh, heavy vehicles as well. And so this definitely means that, you know, uh, this... These kind of invasions or attacks are absolutely not going to stop that resistance that is building up and is even likely to spread to uh, other parts of uh, the West Bank as well, although it's already there in other parts. So definitely what we're likely to see is that despite all these Israeli claims, of course, there's a domestic angle as well. Netanyahu trying to sort of bolster his support among the settlers. We have seen, uh, you know, 
uh, over the past year or so, especially since this government came to power, we have seen a huge wave of settler violence targeting Alaksa, targeting uh, many other parts of the West Bank. We've seen massive legitimization of uh, illegal outposts. We've seen ministers like Ben Weir, you know, openly uh, taking the racism, the extremism, the sheer violence to a completely uh, new level. And we've also seen, of course, uh, verdicts like what happened yesterday when the verdict on the killing of Iyad al-Halak was uh, announced, a 32-year-old Palestinian with autism who was killed in 2020 uh, by a police officer. And now the court has concluded that the killing, the police officer acted in, in good faith and it was a tragic accident and he has been acquitted. And I think all of these are you know, parts of that larger, uh, uh, parts of a larger pattern which has continued for many years, which is definitely intensifying. And I think, uh, the, but uh, all of Israel's attempts to uh, just bulldoze the resistance or to, uh, to uh, you use missiles or heavy military equipment at the resistance is absolutely not going to work. It definitely looks like because uh, things are definitely things are the resistance is reaching a completely new stage there. So uh, unfortunately, it does look like many more of these might happen, like uh, Israel has uh, warned or whatever you call it. But I would foresee that the resistance also continues to grow and spreads as well. So this is a terrible situation, and of course, we've been following this for a while. People's Dispatch on the beat covering the violence done to the Palestinians, but also, as you say, the resistance. We're going to switch gears, cross Atlantic, go to Guatemala. There are elections. Zoe is an expert at covering Latin American elections. Come at it, Zoe. Well, last week we spoke about uh, the results of the Guatemalan elections. Uh, as we reported, the biggest kind of the most significant result was the abstention in this electoral process, the prior acts of sabotage, if you want to put it that way, of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, of barring certain candidates, um, the amount of null and blank votes that were cast in this election. However, now uh, a week after the elections, there's been another uh, update, and that's um, the fact that two right-wing parties filed um, and in a, a complaint saying that the electoral uh, results were not correct, that they were fraudulent, that there was tampering, all sorts of accusations. Um, and in response, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal has suspended the release of the official results of the elections. Um, and it says that it needs a 15-day period to sort of do a recount and reevaluate uh, these results. And uh, this is quite a concerning development, given the fact that this is an electoral process that as we said, despite already having all of these irregularities of not being a process that generated confidence, trust of the population, that already had its defects, it was still observed. The actual day of voting itself had uh, widespread uh, electoral observation, everything in order. The reports have been submitted by all those different bodies. Um, and essentially due to this far right pressure, of parties that had traditionally held power, that had traditionally done quite well in these elections, um, this this body, this authority has decided to sort of cave to their pressure. And this is quite concerning for many reasons. There's already been statements released by not only uh, human rights organizations within Guatemala expressing concern over this, but also major embassies of, for example, the United States 
other global north powers uh, sort of expressing concern over these developments. And I think that the, the key element in this, in this story, in this development in Guatemala is really, once again, it's a show that this whole process, this, this electoral process, this uh, alleged democracy that exists in Guatemala is extremely fragile. Um, it not only has the ability to sort of exclude candidates that it does not want to participate, like the progressive popular candidacy of Thelma Cabrera from the MLP, um, other candidates even more towards just the center. Um, but now when the right wing is upset with these results, it appears that the electoral authority is just going to say, okay, well, since you guys are upset, we're going to actually make a significant decision to suspend the uh, announcing of these results. So. Um, once again, it's it's a process that's already been embroiled in a certain level of turmoil, a certain level of discontent, of mistrust. But this is once again undermining the democratic system, the electoral process. Um, and you know, they said on June on July second that'll be a 15-day process of reviewing these results. We'll see what happens, and I guess now it'll be another week or so that these potentially official results might come out. Will they be large, uh, quite different? Will there be a dramatic shift? That remains to be seen. But I think when we look at other examples across the continent, these moments are often generate even more distrust within the population, even more anxiety about what's happening, about what it means when an entire authority says, actually this process, despite having been acknowledged and verified is not um, legitimate. So we'll definitely be definitely be following this story, seeing what happens with the results, and of course with the response of the people in the streets. That's a great story, important to keep up with. Um, last night I spent two hours in the German Bundestag, the parliament, listening to the debate on the bill for Ukraine's uh, membership in NATO. Very interesting debate. Almost everybody who spoke on the motion of Ukraine's entry into NATO, spoke for um, Ukraine to enter NATO. Very interesting. Almost everybody. That is to say, of course, the Social Democrats who are in power with the Greens and the Free Democrats, the Liberals, uh, all three of them spoke in favor. The Christian Democrats hesitated, but also essentially backed NATO. You might be surprised to know that the right-wing alliance for Deutschland or ADF, uh, AFD, was not only for, um, you know, in a sense, uh, NATO, but they are for increasing Germany's military spending to 2%, uh, which is a demand by the United States of NATO countries. Of course, they are hesitant about um, this particular war, but it's not like they have a position that threatens NATO's grip on German society. Only the linker, the left party, and its delegates spoke against uh, the motion, and that was um, that was Savim Dagdelen, who spoke about NATO's, um, you know, uh, position in Yugoslavia, in Afghanistan, and so on. Very interesting discussion in the German Parliament. Next week, on the 11th and 12th of July, NATO will meet in Vilnius in Lithuania. It's the next summit. It's important to remember at the last NATO summit in June 2022. The NATO alliance pledged to quote unquote deliver the full range of forces for high intensity multi domain war fighting against nuclear armed peer competitors. You know, it was chilling language last year 
Uh, it looks like it will be pretty chilling this year as well. Uh, three things that NATO has signaled will come out of the Vilnius meeting. First, it is expected NATO as a bloc is going to announce increased military spending, including uh, towards the war in Ukraine. Secondly, and most dangerously, NATO is suggesting a surge of NATO troops into and up to the Ukrainian border. Now, does this mean they will cross the border? Certainly, NATO is already involved by arming the Ukrainian military. And there are many, many reports of special forces of different NATO powers already engaged inside Ukraine, including in digital warfare. Not clear if troops will cross the border formally, openly, not covertly. And third, it is very clear that they're going to announce that they're going to intensify um, their actions inside Ukraine. That is to say, military actions. Now, recently, President Vladimir Zelensky made the claim. He accused Russia of mining the Zaporinskia nuclear power plant with the aim of blowing it up. I was struck by the fact that right when Mr. Zelensky made this claim, a very influential um, military strategist and diplomat from the United States, Ivo Dalder, a former ambassador of the US to NATO, published an article in Politico where he suggested that if there is a quote-unquote deliberate nuclear incident, then the NATO powers must directly, militarily, overtly enter in the conflict inside Ukraine, not covertly and not just by weapons delivery and so on, but they should directly. It's chilling to read Ivo Dalder, very influential person in the world of NATO and in the world of military strategy of the United States to make that comment in Politico, just when Mr. Zelensky uh, said that if that, that he claimed that Russia is mining the nuclear power plant and might aim to blow it up. Meanwhile, the question of Sweden's entry into NATO is still on the table. You will remember, already talked on this show about how Sweden uh, was promised entry into NATO with two other Nordic countries. They slipped in. They slipped in, but Sweden was not allowed. Why? Two countries vetoed the entry of Sweden into NATO. And of course, every NATO country must consent um, by, you know, there must be universal consent to allow a new country to enter. The two countries being Turkey and Hungary. Hungary because they say Sweden is unfairly critical of the Hungarian government. Now, Hungary says this about the United States and everybody else, but they've been in NATO since 1949. Hungary cannot exercise a veto against them. But they are upset with Sweden. But if we're honest, Hungary is tailing Turkey in this. Everything is in the hands of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He holds the key. He says that, Turk, that Sweden is harboring Kurdish terrorists. And he says that the attacks against the Quran and Muslims in Sweden is inexcusable. But interestingly, the Swedish government has attempted uh, to answer some of the things that Mr. Erdogan has said, including on June 1st, Sweden rolled out an updated anti-terrorism anti law. Um, which Turkey had effectively pushed for, and it approved the extradition of some Kurdish militants that have been in Sweden. Uh, but this has not been enough for Mr. Erdogan. Mr. Erdogan, um, you know, was very clear to the foreign ministers of Turkey and Sweden who met in Brussels on Thursday, made it very clear it's not going to happen. We're not going to let you 
in this Vilnius summit join NATO. It's an interesting time we live in and we're going to watch this carefully. What happens in Vilnius, Lithuania on the 11th and 12th of July. You're listening to give the people what they want coming to you from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. Happy to have you here. We're going to move on. We have a pretty interesting lineup here. We're going to go to Central Asia and Asia in general because the Shanghai Cooperation Organization had a meeting. Prashant, what did the SCO do this time? Right. So the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting was uh, strangely a virtual meeting. Uh, you know, it was uh, last year they had met in person, quite, uh, caused quite a buzz. And the meeting happening this year amid a very high increase uh, in interest. And I think across the world in interest about both the BRICS, about, about the SCO, because for many countries, they seem to sort of constitute a different way of how the world could be organized, a different way of how, you know, international relations itself could be conducted. And uh, of course, we also know that many of the members of the SCO are very powerful economies in themselves as well. So uh, this time it was a virtual meeting, which I suspect has something to do with uh, Indian politics as well, which we can come to later. But it was an interesting meeting because we saw, for one, the fact that Iran was admitted as an official member of the SCO. And this, uh, you know, I think cements the process of uh, Iran, uh, say, establishing its own track in uh, the region. We saw some months ago the whole Iran Saudi Arabia rapprochement thing, which had been mediated by China. Uh, Iran, of course, now uh, by joining the SCO, it is also sort of, I think, it is attempting to buffer what uh, what the United States has often been trying to do over the years, which is to isolate it as much as possible, accuse it of uh, all kinds of crimes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, but if you also read the statement that the SCO heads of state summit released, uh, quite interesting in terms of how it advocates. And, you know the role of multipolarity, how it talks about the need to avoid a block-based mentality, how it talks about reforming the World Trade Organization, for instance, taking a very strong, taking very strong cognizance of the fact that global trade rules are so prone to, uh, so prone to manipulation, so prone to be used by any country the United States uh, does not want, is not happy with. Uh, of course, calling for greater cooperation. There's been talk about greater economic. Uh, cooperation as well. One interesting aspect was the fact that uh, the Belt Road Initiative also also mentioned India, of course, not uh, being part of that specific part of the statement, which you know expressed support for it. Uh, you know, India and China, of course, have had uh, having quite severe differences over a number of issues. But uh, you know, I would still think that the fact that the summit uh, the summit uh, took place itself, the fact that there uh, continues to be momentum in this direction uh, is a very positive sign. I think BRICS has about 40% of the world's population. Uh, its uh, combined GDP is quite substantial. And very interestingly, a lot of countries showing interest in... Uh, sorry, I'm talking about SCO, not BRICS. A lot of countries showing interest in joining the SCO. So although it began as an organization that was... Uh, you know, focused on Central Asia, which still is a very powerful focus, was more on the eastern side. We have countries from West Asia, for instance, showing a lot of interest in joining. Belarus has officially begun the process. We know that many other countries, like including the UAE, are interested. So it does definitely look like BRICS 
has a lot of momentum. SEO has a lot of momentum when it comes to uh, growing as a block. I keep saying BRICS because uh, we also have the BRICS summit coming up in August, which is going to be another very pivotal moment when uh, leaders of these countries are going to have these discussions. And again, there's a lot of interest in joining and entering uh, BRICS as well, what is being called the BRICS Plus. So overall, I think, especially after the Ukraine war, contrary to what the United States and its allies expected, uh, rather than uh, the, the collapse of Russia and the withdrawal of China or the, uh, say, encircling and restriction of China, what has happened is precisely the opposite. We have all these countries forming greater groups, uh, the possibility of more trade taking place in currencies other than the dollar, the BRICS, banks is, BRICS Bank is being talked about, even some talk about the SCO Bank, for instance, Putin talking about the need for more trading in respective currencies, a lot of logistical hurdles to cross, a lot of institutions that need to be built. But there does definitely seem to be uh, a lot of momentum in this direction. And that definitely clearly worries the United States and its allies. It certainly worries them, worries them as well that the European Union, which they've been trying to yoke back into the Atlantic Alliance, is holding a meeting at um, with the in, in Brussels with the uh, SALAC group from Latin America. Zoe, what, what's going on with this SALAC EU summit? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, this, the EU is not holding a EU OAS, that's Organization of American States Summit. So I think that in itself is something important to point out. And uh, on July 17th and 18th, uh, yes, there will be a summit between um, leaders of uh, the CELAC group, which uh, covers Latin America and the Caribbean. It's currently uh, presided over by uh, Rafael uh, Monsalves, Gonsalves uh, from St. Vincent and Grenadines. Uh, this is an important platform of uh, regional integration within Latin America and the Caribbean. It's a, it's a platform that was founded uh, during the first progressive wave by Hugo Chavez uh, with the initiative of uh, Cuba, of uh, Fidel, a very revolutionary platform to really counteract uh, the strength of a platform like the Organization of American States, which has been explicitly uh, against Cuba, for example, from its foundation, has consistently excluded Cuba. And so CELAC emerges as an alternative to this. So this is a summit that's going to take place in Brussels, as I said, in the middle of July. These are, they're going to discuss different issues of uh, economic agreements, um, trade opportunities, uh, generally, as many of these summits do, discussing the issues facing our societies today. I think everyone, even if they don't call it capitalism, when they say that there's great challenges facing humanity, at least we know what they're talking about. Um, and so it's going to be a very interesting moment. I think we're going to see leaders such as Miguel Diaz-Canel, who of course is the target of many U.S. policies, uh, Nicolas Maduro, Gustavo Petro, Lula da Silva, all of these progressive leaders um, that have in some way or another tried to be minimized by the United States, uh, who are really representing this new, as uh, Prashant was talking about, new spaces of uh, creating integration, of using different currencies. Lula as immediately once he was sworn in talked about using not the dollar to do trade agreements. And so the fact that these kinds of leaders, these 
leaders who are trying to forge a new type of international relations, a new type of diplomacy, are going to be meeting in the European Parliament in Brussels. Uh, they're going to be meeting with these European leaders who uh, the U.S., as you said, BJ, tries to corral so much to respond to their desires. And also important to mention that parallel to this official summit, which is going to again have uh, you know, diplomatic bodies, have heads of states, there's going to be a people's summit that's organized by uh, people's movements uh, within Europe, but also in conjunction with people's movements in Latin America, there's gonna be important delegations going there. Uh, because as we know in, in these official summits, it's a lot of, uh, you know, government to government level discussions, um, but of course the integration of people's, uh, their desires, their needs, their uh, desire to build together is just as important. So there's gonna be a series of very interesting panel discussions, talks, there's going to be a festival, um, talking about the involvement and the legacy, for example, of Europe in Latin America. Of course, uh, Latin America, most of Latin America was colonized by European countries, there's a long legacy of domination. Um, many countries in the Caribbean, which uh, Ralph Gonzalez, of course, is representing in his presidency in CELAC, are still uh, colonized by European countries. And so there's a very, very important dialogue to be had, not only of what are the issues that the people of Latin America are facing, but how are the, the movements of Europe going to continue fighting against imperialism, which is infecting not only them in Europe, but of course, uh, this region of Latin America and the Caribbean. So it's going to be a very interesting summit, uh, both the CELAC summit with the heads of state and also the People's Summit. It seems like there's going to be uh, some special guests at the People's Summit. Maybe some of those heads of states are going to engage with the movements there. We'll be covering it uh, next week and a half in Brussels. Not Well, we won't be on the ground, but we will be receiving uh, important updates from the ground uh, and sharing that with people on People's Dispatch. Well, Brussels is also the headquarters of NATO. We already said that uh, five or six days before this EU CELAC summit, NATO will be meeting in Lithuania. The United Kingdom in this interim decided to announce in a very small trade show that they've developed a new Royal Navy Type 83 destroyer. Um, interesting development. You might remember that in July 2021, the UK's Navy sent the Queen Elizabeth II out into the South China Sea in a deployment uh, against China. Very impo important deployment. Now, reading the UK's 2022 National Strategy for Maritime Security, it is very interesting how the United Kingdom has focused so much of its maritime uh, ambitions on the South China Sea. It's almost a return to the early 19th century. The strategy document said the UK will deploy at least two vessels, uh, a frigate and, uh, and, 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 and perhaps a destroyer into the South China Sea. Um, the development of this Type 83 is interesting because here we have a situation where the UK is interested in building naval ships that are able to uh, defend against missile attacks. Um, what I find fascinating in what the UK has been saying is the UK has essentially been saying that they want to be as heavily involved as possible um, in the South China Sea as much as the United States would allow them. Uh, they've written about this directly. Fascinatingly, the South China Morning Post reported, and I must say, I 
Although I do read the South China Morning Post, it's not always the most reliable newspaper um, to talk about news about China. Although this was fascinating, they argued uh, that there has recently been a simulated, uh, you know, all defensive strategy by the Chinese called the Z Day or Z Day Total War Scenario, um, which the, the account of it was published in a in a Chinese journal called the Chinese Journal of Ship Research, um, where they talked about how um, the Chinese were preparing themselves for a hypothetical attack, which would include some of these UK vessels. Um, in the simulation, the People's Liberation Army, the Navy, had 50 destroyers. Um, you know, they went out there and defended themselves. What I found quite interesting, both about the South China Morning Post report and the reports coming out of the United Kingdom was that it was very clear to everybody that the Chinese are developing um, weapon systems and developing um, weapons planning or military planning regarding defensive uh, maneuvers to defend against attacks. I think this is pretty interesting. It's also, of course, true that there have been prior simulations that have been released by the Chinese uh, about what would happen if they decided to launch an invasion of Taiwan. I don't want to minimize the fact that that exists. But largely, the evidence here from the Z-Day total war planning is a defensive plan against an attack largely would come from the United States, United Kingdom, NATO powers against the Chinese mainland. Fascinating development. We're going to keep watching this and tracking it. You know, news reports very rarely track these military developments. You want stuff about these military developments? Come to People's Dispatch, come to Globetrotter, come to give the people what they want. You've been with us half an hour, 133rd show. We'll see you next week where we have 134th show. Over.